Every year, my Christmas season ends with this sad production of taking lights down and, and dumping Christmas trees. It's, it's very sad. <laughs> I untangle the lights from the tree, wondering like, what bulbs will reignite next year and which ones will never light up again. We have Christmas tree graveyard in our backyard. All the trees go there every year. They look kind of green and kind of normal when I put them back there in the back corner, uh, but by the next year, I cannot find them anymore. They have been absorbed into the earth itself, like Luke's X-wing went into the Dagobah swamp. And there's no force power that's going to bring them out. They're gone. Then all that's left is kind of the deadness of winter. For, for, it's, the, it's the worst like, part of the year for me. Just mentally, emotionally, winter just feels so dead and so long. And there's still more to come. And, and, and then finally, you know, spring shoves its rebellious green life through the ground that looked as dead as it can be. So Christmas comes with a lot of singing and lights and shiny wrapping paper, but it ends with this gloomy housekeeping chore. And it's fitting to me, though, that there's no such practice in my life with Easter. I don't have Easter lights to take down, but the light of spring just gets brighter and brighter with a sun that keeps staying up later each day. Flowers and green and birds and bugs that carry this holiday on its shoulders in this kind of impossible-to-miss metaphor for resurrection. And that's appropriate because God does not want us putting Easter away. If Christmas signifies the invasion of hope into our world, Easter proclaims the permanence of victory. If Christmas tells us that God has come, Easter tells us that God is taking over and he's never leaving again. In Christmas, God comes to us in Easter, God says he lives in us eternally. He's only getting started in us. There's a permanent change that took place on Easter Sunday, on that first Easter Sunday. We spent all last week talking about it. And if you didn't listen to last week's message, I just want to ask you to at least listen to the first, uh, first two-thirds um, as we look through the text in Romans 6 and went verse by verse trying to kind of really eat the nugget core of that text to really understand that God has done something through the death and resurrection of Jesus in you, for you, with you, that's irreversible. He has started something that's growing that's never going to change, that's only going to get more and more functionally true in your life because it's already true about who you are. Last week we looked at this impossibly glorious truth in Romans 6 that the Holy Spirit placed us spiritually into Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners, he united us with Christ on the cross, united our sin with the blameless Son of God, made him to be sin for us, and then crucified our old self with Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at last week. Line by line by line in Romans 6, Paul just shouts this again and again and again. You were buried with Christ into death. We died with Christ. Our old man was crucified with Christ. We were in some mysterious spiritual sense with Christ on Calvary 2,000 years ago. He took not only our sin, he took our soul, our God-hating, God-indifferent, dead to God, dead sinful selves to the cross with him. 
excuse me. And there, united with Jesus, who we used to be, was crucified with him and put to death forever. We also saw even more impossibly this glorious truth that when Jesus rose on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago, in a spiritual but very real sense, we rose with him. Not the same, not as the enslaved selves we used to be, but as resurrected spirits, born again, new creations, raised in union with Jesus Christ, fused into him. He fused into us forever. Now, the, the culmination The apex of this union will occur on the final resurrection day when Jesus returns, when our very bodies are raised with his return. But at the core, the fundamental resurrection of our spirits has already occurred. And that's what we talked about last Sunday. Today I want to continue into this truth with a view towards application and I want us to consider some reasons why this truth of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection must take root in our hearts in order to bear fruits fruit in our lives. So let's, let's put up our texts and we'll say this together. If we could move forward a couple of slides, Brando, I think we're going to start at Romans six eleven, Or Pam, Pam, you're back there. I'm sorry? Uh, the first word of that text is uh, can we go back to verse eight? There, you know, Pam, that will be fine. That will be fine. Okay, let's say this together. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And move forward. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And um, so Pam, if we could go back to verse 11, real quick. Let me pray, you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a, a deep need for prayer right now, and you guys can pray with me. Lord, as I... Lord, I just pray for your help. We cannot see anything apart from you empowering us to see. But you gave your Holy Spirit to us and placed him inside us, Paul says, so that we might know what has been freely given to us by God. So that spiritual things could be interpreted by spiritual people. And so that what looks like foolishness to the world would not look like foolishness to us. But that you would open our eyes to see what is true and what is freely given to us in Christ Jesus. 
I pray this in his name. Amen. My first point this morning is put your faith where it should be. Put your faith where it should be. Verse 11 says, or put your faith in the right place. I guess I edited that last night. Put your faith in the right place. What I would just want to do in point one is just echo verse 11, picking up where we ended last week. In verse 11, Paul commands us this. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in God, to God in Christ Jesus. After telling us what Jesus did with us on Calvary and on Easter morning, Paul begins his application with this simple but essential command. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. Another way of saying this is Paul is saying, believe this. Like, believe this. Count it true. Count it true. What Paul is doing, we just drive by these phrases sometimes, you know. Believe this thing, put your faith in this thing. (laughs) Paul is doing something really, really huge here. He's telling you to put your hope, put your hope for following Jesus Christ. Listen, 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 listen. He is telling you to put your hope for following, giving yourself to, offering your life to, for being able to do that successfully. He's telling you to put your hope to do all that in Jesus Christ. He's telling you to put your hope for following Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ. He's telling you to put your hope for walking in the new resurrection life that Jesus has placed in you. To put your hope for the ability to walk with God in resurrection power exclusively in what God has done for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. Paul's entire argument in Romans 6 for why you can and why you should and why you must live a life of love and righteousness and power is not because sin is evil and you should want the good life of obedience. It's not because it would be a terrible thing to do to the God who died for you. It's not because this is the way we can thank God for what he's done for us. It's not any of that. It is because you are literally not who you used to be. Your old self, Paul says, died with Jesus. Your new self, Paul says, rose with Jesus. And everything he says in Romans 6, after this declaration in the first half, is either an elaboration, a repetition, an unpacking of that fact of our death and resurrection in union with Jesus Christ on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, AD 27 or 30, whatever it was, or it's a command to believe it. And a new new elaboration of how to walk that out. So I want to ask you something this morning. What is your basis for your hope of living out the Christian life? Like, what is your basis? Like, functionally in your mind when you think about it. What what gives you hope that you're going to be successfully able to follow Jesus in any given day? 
Like what's at the core of your hope for it? Is it your quiet time? Your devotional life? Is it your accountability group? Or your whatever, your, your spiritual friendships? Your buddies in Christ, whoever they are? Is it your earnest prayers? Is it your knowledge of scripture and your ability to stand on the word of God? Is it the warnings of scripture and your fear of the Lord? Is it your fear of shame or failure? Are those the things that motivate you and, and stand at the root of why you think you can walk with Jesus today? Good upbringing from godly parents. And I'm not saying God cannot or does not use those things. He uses all those things. But at a fundamental level, that's not, that's not the Bible. Like That's not Christianity. At the fundamental level, if that's at the core Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, God uses those things. In that sense, it is part of the Christian life. But at the fundamental level, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, let your hope for walking with Jesus Christ today, above all things, be this, that the impossibly glorious Son of God took your old self and killed him on his cross when he let him be crucified for you and raised your spirit new in power with his own spirit when he rose from the dead. Paul is saying that is why you can be different. That is why you must be different. And Paul is saying to us, you didn't do any of that. That's the best news of all. You didn't do any of that. You didn't work that out. You didn't go up to Jesus and jump on his back and you didn't inculcate yourself in that tomb. No, this is God's doing. So putting your faith in the right place, putting your hope for your Christian walk in the right place is rooting it fundamentally at its core in what God has done to you in putting to death your old self and raising you new in Christ Jesus. Everett Harrison writes this. I don't think we have this quote up there, but it's a beautiful quote. Listen. Speaking about Paul's writing here. What he does present here is not the impossibility of committing sin. Okay, we're not talking about the impossibility of ever sinning again but the impossibility of continuing in a life dominated by sin. Death to sin is not something hoped for or resolved upon by the believer. It is something that has already taken place. It is a simple fact basic to the living of the Christian life. The certainty of our present participation in this new resurrection life is grounded on the truth that we have been united with him and his death and in his resurrection. And that idea of when Paul says with him, united with him, it virtually has the force of fused into one. 
And Everett ends with this quote with this, clearly this union is not something gradually arrived at through a process of sanctification. Listen to that again. Clearly this union in Christ's death and resurrection, our old life being killed, our new life being born in Christ is not something gradually arrived at through a process of sanctification. Rather, it is something established by God that becomes the very basis of sanctification in which the Christian life is expressed through the individual life of the one joined in him. One way I think you could put it is this. Yes, there is, there is a growing up in Christ. But there is no growing into Christ. You don't grow into Christ. You are in Christ. And you, you, you simply grow in the one you're already in. You used to be cut off from God. You used to be united with sin. Now you are just the opposite. You are united with God's heart and power and life. And you are cut off from a life where sin has to rule you. Where sin must rule you. Where sin has the power to rule you. This is Romans 6. And again, if you didn't hear the text work you can go back to last week's message. I spent a long time trying to look at this text with many verses we looked at. But that's point one. Let your hope of walking with God today be fundamentally in what God has done to put to death who you were and to raise to life a new you in Christ Jesus, united with him. Number two, stand against Satan and for God's honor. Stand against Satan and for God's honor. So it's one thing for me to say to you guys, put your faith in the right place, right? But, but we all understand that is a battle. It's a battle. I know you guys know that. I, one of the blessings of having a smaller church is that I'm, I'm getting to know you guys more and more and more. And so I, I don't want you to hear me being like, just do this, just Count yourselves dead to sin. It's easy. Don't worry about it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, there is a fight to fight. But you gotta know the right fight to fight. You know those, those videos you'll see every once in a while of like the guy who's making the big play in the football game and he runs and he's thinking he's got like the victory and it's so sweet and his whole teammate's going like this because he's running towards the wrong end zone. Like you, you remember seeing those YouTube clips or they put it in movies, I'm sure. It's just kind of a trope. Like it's a comedy cliche. Like, gets the ball, is running. We're all gonna run, right? Like we're all gonna fight our day. Like let's run towards the right end zone. <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm saying here in this morning and in, in, in this is, is really like, let's know where we're supposed to be headed. Yes, we're gonna have to fight for this. Yes, we're gonna have to believe God for this. But let's run towards the right direction. The first thing is what God says is you are new. You are not who you used to be and you didn't do that. Jesus did that. Put your hope in that. Number two, kind of elaborating here. Believing this truth is a fight. We have to stand against the enemy of our souls and we have to fight for God's honor. Re- remember that, that putting, the truths, putting our, our, our hope in the truth of God's promises, the word of God, it's always the pathway to experiencing God's power for us in terms of our, our active life. God can be merciful and jump in, and whenever he wants to, he can lift our spirits. 
But in terms of our work to do, it starts fundamentally with putting our hope in the promises of God, putting our hope in the truths of God. Believing the promises of God's word releases the power of the spirit in our lives so that we might experience the reality of those promises. So we have to fight. We have to fight for this truth. We have to fight to stand on to it. But it will be a fight. Satan does not want you believing you are new in Christ. He doesn't. It's one thing to believe that Jesus died for all my sins. It's an entirely different battle it's to, to believe that because of that, I'm dead to sin now, and I'm alive to God, and I can walk with him successfully each day in a loving relationship with my father. Satan does not want you believing that. He 1 Peter 5 says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I get the picture of that. I've heard the picture explained this way. It's really a bully. It's a bully. Just an intimidator. He just comes up and he screams at you. He yells at you. You're trash. You're doomed. You're condemned. You're going to fail again. You are hopeless. There is no way out of this. He just yells that stuff. Revelation tells us that he stands before God accusing the brothers and sisters day and night. And we hear the echoes of that accusation, don't we? I do. (laughs) He is a bully. And he's also a liar. Jesus called him the father of lies. So he doesn't want you believing these truths. So when Paul stops in the middle of this beautiful story about what Christ has done for us and he says, consider this true, believe this is true. I, I think he's, he's, he, he knows that this is a battle. He knows that this is not easy for us to believe. He stops right in the middle of this amazing doctrine he's telling us. It's, like, it's, it's just kind of funny. Like, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. Oh, by the way, you need to believe this is true. This is true, this is true, you know? He just knows this is a fight. So he's, he's not giving a suggestion to us or an option to us to consider this as true. This is an apostolic command. One writer writes, this command is freighted with apostolic authority. It must never be treated as frivolous. When God says your old self was crucified with Christ and you're to believe that, you can almost feel unworthy of that, right? Like I know I still struggle with sin. I know I still fail. There's so many areas in my life where I need to grow. And you can feel presumptuous to suppose that you really are new. I don't feel like I act always like I knew, I'm new. What do you mean I can, I'm dead to sin? That's way above my pay grade. I mean, it can feel kind of arrogant to assume that at every moment of my waking life, I have the life of Christ, Jesus Christ, living inside of me. And that he's my resource to live for him. And that I can say no to what sin throws at me. And I can say yes to what God is calling me to. It can just feel arrogant. It can feel naive. It can feel like it lacks sophistication. It can feel... But this is God's word. This is God's authoritative, apostolically commissioned word because of God's actions, God's word declaring over you what is true. And and in in a real sense, maybe this will help motivate you 
to believe this is true, that you truly are new in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. God's honor is at stake in our hearts with regard to what we do with these truths. God's honor. Jesus has staked his death on this truth. God has staked his son's very blood on this truth. So if you say, I I cannot beat sin, I cannot love my wife as I should, I cannot work as hard as I should at work, I cannot control my anger as I should, you, you are saying something primarily, not about yourself primarily, you're saying something about God. You're saying something about the work of of God's son. And when you say, I can walk in freedom, I can walk by the Spirit's power, I can say yes to loving others and no to selfishness as it attacks me, you are declaring God to be true and not a liar. Do you see how God's honor is tied up in what you do with his proclamation over you? You see how his son's honor is at stake and whether you believe this truth or not? I mean, God takes this truth so seriously, he pours his son's own blood all over it to say to you, you are new. You can walk. You can come out of that tomb and take off the grave clothes and walk in my ways. You can do this. I have set you free to do this. And I'm, I'm legitimizing and stamping that truth with my very own son's blood. So don't say it's not true. Point three, you're alive to God. You're alive to God, not to self-sufficiency. We briefly touched on this last week, but I want to emphasize this. Listen carefully to what Paul says. Let's go back to verse 11. Sorry, Pam, I'm making you jump all over here. Appreciate your um, staying with me here. Going back to verse 11. Likewise, you also recognize yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next verse. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts and do not present your members as instruments in righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. The work that Jesus did, slaying your old self and bringing to birth a new you, was so that you could be vitally connected to God and experience a new life with God. He doesn't say, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to morality. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to abstract virtue. He says, count yourselves alive to God. He doesn't even say, offer yourselves to righteousness. He says, offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, as those brought from death to life in God. He says, present your members, it means every single part of you, to God. And so we see over and over and over and over again that we're invited to a life oriented around God, oriented around a person not simply a virtue. This is so fundamentally different than the way the world views morality. 
I mean, there are some exceptions to this in New Age stuff and different religions, but, but in our secular West particularly, the, the world craves morality. It has its ethic. It has its hunger for righteousness in its own terms. But what's, what's so crucially different about it is the world sees a good life as a function of following abstract principles of love, morality, justice, compassion. The Christian sees a good life as a function of knowing and depending and loving and committing to a person. Do you see the difference? The world sees a good life as following abstract principles of virtue, of morality, and ethics. The Christian sees a good life as a byproduct of knowing a person walking with a person, committing to a person, devoting their lives to a person, loving a person. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so much better. It's just as the universe should be. So this new life is a life lived with God as our God. We don't have an independent capacity for goodness apart from living off of his spirit and living in conversation and relationship with him. So kind of going back to what I don't want you to hear earlier when I said don't think quiet times are a bad thing, that's kind of, we're moving into that now. This means that I walk out this new life I have with Christ, with Christ. So I sing to him. I praise him. I plead with him. I, I listen to his words. I cling to his promises. I take his warning seriously. I put my hope in his salvation. I ask him for help all the time and I believe him with even the tiniest mustard seed of faith for help and I do it not as a foreigner to him but as his blood bought child alive to him we're not alive to self-sufficiency we're alive to God dependence here's an illustration from my life Last week, after preaching on our new life in Christ, I immediately went into uh, to dad crisis mode. <laughs> the next day, we went to Harper's Ferry as a family. There's a beautiful bridge to walk over. If you haven't been to Harper's Ferry, it's, most of you probably have. Beautiful bridge to walk over the river. There's a beautiful brewery on the other side, I think the Virginia side, called Harper's Ferry Brewing. Um, just incredible views. I mean, th- it's a breathtaking little, tiny little town. Um, and uh, at the end of our trip, I just wanted to get this family picture. You know, it was a beautiful day, beautiful nature. Uh, my kids are growing up so fast. Um, we're having a sweet season together as a family, and I just wanted to get this beautiful picture of my four beautiful little kids. I just love them so much. They're so amazing. They're so cute. So trying to get them up, um, you know, to stand against this nice fence above the river and everything like that, it was a complete nightmare. I mean, my kids, you know, two five, seven, and ten. And, oh my gosh, it was just like, it was just, I just want a picture, like one picture. And, and seriously, I was committed to, to, to the time. Like I, I looked at this as a parenting project that was gonna take some investment and effort and patience. And I was committed to that. Just, I mean, we spent like 20 minutes, it felt like there. I just wanted, that's all I wanted, you know? And I wasn't asking everybody for perfect smiles or perfect hair, not even like perfect pivoting towards the camp. Like I would have taken this, you know? I wasn't asking for this. Just like, can I just be able to recognize you in 20 years, that that was your profile even, you know? 
but I couldn't get it together. And finally, like, I got it together. Like, I got three out of four. And then the fourth one, while the three are like there, ready, 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 the fourth one starts like demanding different like shots, like different positions, different, pro- what about this? Why don't we do this? What <laughs> this fourth one should, of all the kids, should have known better. I'm not gonna say her name. But man, I I just was like, fine, forget it. Forget it. Let's move on. And I walked away. Let's go. Let's go get whatever. Go down the next street or whatever. And I was fuming. And I didn't yell. Like, I was like, ah! Like, in front of the harbor. I was just like, okay, forget it. Forget it. I just can't do this anymore. I walked away, you know? I was so, like, I was so, I got really like, gosh, why? Like, this is like literally like 25 minutes. Like, why can't you just, like, I didn't say any of that. But that's what I was feeling. And it just, it all just rose up in me. You know, this anger. And then, and then, crushing pressure. Long ago, a pastor said to me, something like, and I think this is absolutely true. I think this is absolutely, just makes all kinds of sense with the Bible and the universe. He said, you know, as, as a dad, when you're the head of the home or you're the, you're the leader in the marriage, it's not always your fault, but it's always your responsibility. It's not always your fault, but it's always your responsibility. So the, you know, the argument doesn't mean that every time <laughs> you have an argument with your wife, the husband's in the wrong. But it means every time you have an argument with your wife, it's your responsibility to seek reconciliation and to seek restoration. It's not always your fault, but it's always your responsibility. And I just felt that crushing weight of that. Like, I'm hurt. I'm the injured party here. So I'm the one who has to clean up this mess. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't like, how dare you ask me to clean up this mess? It was more just like, I can't do this. I can't clean up this mess. You're asking me to lead my family, and I can't lead my family, but I'm supposed to lead my family in love, and I need to, like, and, and you know, I know, what's, I know what's possible with my little one. Like, we have a good relationship now, but I know how these things can turn, and I know that, you know, a few more rungs on the ladder of argument and, and breakdown and pouting. And you begin to root a pattern. You begin to build character of strife and, and a culture of division and pain. And I'm looking down the corridor of a daughter in a few years who doesn't really trust her dad. Feels like she can't really talk to her dad. I mean, I know we're not there yet, but you know, I'm just, my imagination is going and so that gives me another, I gotta fix this. I don't wanna enter into that relationship with my girl. But I just felt such inability in my emotion and and in all of that, I just heard the Lord say, (laughs) you have to carry this but you can't carry this unless I carry you. 
you have to carry this, Albert. You're the dad. This is your girl. I gave her to you to raise and to care for. And she needs your protection now. She needs your love. She needs your reconciliation. She's because Oh, I didn't tell you that part, did I? <laughs> she was all upset. She was crushed. Felt blamed and shamed and didn't know what to do with herself. Crying and... <sighs> And that went into all my sense of pressure and I got to fix this and what's going to happen. But I just, I got nothing. And the Lord just said, you don't have anything in yourself, but you have what you need in me, dude. So come to me with your mess and let me talk to you and help you with your mess so that you can go to your girl and help her. And so I did. You know, I just, I just, I grabbed Hebrews 4 and I went to war with Satan. I went to war with his lies about who I am and what I can't do and how I relate to God and who God really is. And I just said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to war. And my warfare at this stage is being a completely helpless, needy child going to my dad. That's my warfare. Being a completely helpless, needy little boy going to his dad for his help. That's warfare. Hebrews 4, you do not have a high priest, Albert, who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. You have one who has been tempted in every way, just like you, but he's never sinned. So go to him with faith, with boldness, with knock down that door and scream in the courts of heaven, Daddy, help! With confidence, come to him. And I found help. I mean, what can I tell you? I found help. See, before Christ, it it wouldn't matter how much I fought to be a good dad. Before Christ saved me through the gospel, it wouldn't matter how much I prayed or whatever God I prayed to. I was dead to God's help. But Jesus Christ took my soul and he fused it into his own. And I'm as alive to God as he is now. God's heart is as open to me as it is to his own son. He lives in me. He lives in you. He hears when you call. He doesn't always answer in the way and the timing you want him to. That's called faith, not sight, sometimes. But his word activates our hope. His promises bring us strength. His hands wash our feet again and again and again. That's what this new life in Christ is supposed to functionally be lived out as you are brought into a relationship with a god not with morality you are to be dependent you are alive to someone not alive to abstract ethics and being a good boy and a good girl you are called to relate that's what being in a relationship with god means you relate to him you interact with him you pray to him you sing to him, you cry to him, you play you you know everything i said at the beginning i'm repeating myself But that's point three. You're alive to dependence, not self-sufficiency. Final point, present yourselves. Finally, let's come back to the overall commandment Paul Paul brings us to here. After saying all these glorious things that you have to believe because he calls you to, when I say have to believe, I I mean his apostolic authority is, is put its impretar on that call for you to reckon this to be true. Paul then says, based on you seeing these things, based on you believing these things, don't bypass that and go to the commandment 
to live this life? No, 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 no. Rest, I, meditate on, reflect in. Get, I, I'm going off road here. What I'm trying to say is, I said this to, to a buddy this week. God doesn't want you driving quickly by the truths that he's given to us about what he's done for us and to us through Jesus Christ moving to the commandments because his whole argument is based on you're getting this truth. You're you're putting your faith in this truth. You're standing on this truth. Now, doing that, doing that, believing this is true, now present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That's what he says. He says, present yourselves, having believed these things, present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members, it means every part of your body, present it to God as an instrument for righteousness. And this word present or offer, offer by, by this word, it, it, it really means this critical resolve. It's a decision to surrender. It really is there. It, this is not a word about waffling and self-doubt. It's not a word about boasting and self-confidence. Paul is saying, resolve, Resolve yourself. Commit yourself. Not based on you. Not based on what you've done. Based on how great God is, how true his promises are, what he can do. Resolve yourself. Decisively commit that you will belong to God now. That you will give yourself to live for him. And so we must stop letting Satan bully us into fear and slavery. Because we're not slaves to fear anymore. We're sons and daughters of the king, Paul is saying. Oh, man. I, I, think it was, I think it was a few months ago. I, I recently recall one morning when I was seeking to offer myself afresh. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make it a practice to daily present myself before God, to deny myself and follow him. You know, because I see that in the, in the Bible. I see, daily take up your cross and follow me. And, and I remember it was in this room, this very room. I'm walking here one morning, and I'm telling God, Lord, I'm, I'm going to offer myself to you today to follow you. Whatever you're asking me to do, I'm giving myself to you. And I heard these whispers. What if God asks you to leave this city and to leave this job? What if he asked you to sell your house? You wouldn't do that. You can't do that. You love your house. You're, you're so prone to the middle class American dream. And that will just clutch you. You want to give yourself to God, but you love your house. So you, you, you don't really mean these words. And I just was just so discouraged by that, you know? Because I really want to give myself to God. But there's a part of that voice is, I really do love things in this world. I really can love things. <laughs> Good gifts, like houses and families and food and even good things, right? And so I was, I was just bullied. I was just being intimidated. And then I heard God say, Albert, no temptation will overcome you, but it's common to everybody. And I will provide a way out so you can escape it and you can endure it. I know you. I know your frame. 
I know what you can take and what you can't take, and I will provide a way out. So offer yourself. It was the craziest thing. I know it happened in you know, 30 seconds, but it, I think it was the first time in my life when I ever said to that doubt, please forgive me if this offends you. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> my God is able to deliver me. If my American middle class house rears its attractive face and God's call for me to sell it and move somewhere else, my dad is able to deliver me. So I'm going to offer myself to him today, even about that, because he can deliver me. You see what happened there? I didn't say anything about how good I was or how ethical I was or how much I was like Billy Graham or Jim Elliott or St. Anthony and how I'm willing to go to the cross with you if I must. I just said, God, you're going to deliver me of that temptation. You're not going to let it be too big for me. So all his promises are there for us. All his power is there for us. That's what Paul's telling us here. Let's do this. Let's present ourselves. Let's offer ourselves to him as instruments in his hands of love, love for our families, love for our wives and our husbands. Let's offer himself as instruments of love for our children, as instruments of love for our church and faithfulness to one another and caring. Let's offer ourselves as love for our coworkers to demonstrate who he is in our lives, that he's real. Let's offer ourselves. He's done this. He's made it possible. He really has made it possible for us to do this. So how can we say no to that? Amen? Amen?